or, or who we are. However, regardless of how much you could convince yourself or repeat this rhyme, words have power. Words can hurt. Words can devastate us. Words can destroy. But words can create. Words can make someone laugh, and they can make someone weep. Words can make some angry. Words can give birth to emotions. Words make things. God created the universe and all things through his word. Through his word, he creates all things. Through his word, he sustains all things. Through his word, he brings end to all things. Jesus is, act, is referred to as the Word. That's the imagery that the New Testament gives Jesus, that he is the Word of God, the one that makes, the one that creates, the one that sustains all things. You, you read uh, the New Testament, the gospel stories, and what does Jesus do? He speaks. He uses words. And what do those words do? They create and make things, right? Jesus calms the sea and the wind with what? words. He tells them, stop it. Be calm. Be at peace. They stop. When Jesus calls his apostles, his followers, what does he do? He says, come, follow me. In the text, you never see them hesitate. There's never a moment where they think, hmm, let me see just weigh the pros and cons of following Jesus. No, his words create something in them that they just go. They just, it just happens. Words create something. When Jesus talks to uh, the child and he talks to Lazarus, he says, Arise, get up, be resurrected. They're resurrected. Everything, the molecules, and everything, they're determined, are created by his words. They respond to him. And so do we. Jesus creates. Words create. You think about a wedding ceremony, right? A man and a woman come together. There's two families or two people. And with words, they create something new. With words. They say, I will. I do. And in that moment, with just those words, they create, with a promise, with words, a new family. They create two, become one. With words. Powerful. Something that didn't exist suddenly exists because of a promise and because words. Humanity and all of creation are created on a word of promise by God. By God. Words of promise. God creates us and sustains us. He says, I will solve your problem, I will make you new. That is what creates us, God's words. God loves us. And out of God's outflowing love, 
We've learned about this a couple weeks ago, right? God so loves, it loves, this overflows, it continually flows out of him. It's a fountain of love. And out of that love, by necessity, it just creates. God is generous with his love, and so it creates. And so, therefore, love is creative. And he creates with words. God's words are love, all of them. God's words are love, and love creates. Words create. Just as God spoke in the beginning, God has spoken to us with his word, with the scriptures, with the Bible. And it's interesting, right, that God decided to reveal himself in intimate detail with words, not pictures or video. Right. It, God could have waited until there was video that was created or a production, right, or movies or 3Ds or right, augmented reality or whatever it is. He could, he could have waited until that medium to reveal himself, but he didn't. He revealed himself when there time with just words and then it was written down. That's how God decides, I'm going to reveal myself with words. Because words have power. Words create. The written word of God, the Bible, God gives us that because God loves us. And God loves us with his creative words, life-giving words in this book. As Solomon concludes his book of wisdom, his book of many words, to summarize all of wisdom and knowledge that he has ascertained. And remember last week we learned in the, the, the preamble of his epilogue that remember he told us to, to remember God today. You might not have tomorrow. Remember God today because death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. And that is really the summation of Ecclesiastes that we are to view life right now in the present with the certainty that we will die. And the uncertainty of knowing when we will die. So live life to its fullest, in its joy, right now. Right now. And this epilogue continues on to this summary of wisdom, to remembering God. And now he actually answers the question, how and why we should remember God today. He explains it more fully. How and why I or you or we should remember God today. And he gives us four observations. Two hows and two whys. All the wisdom that, that Solomon has gotten through all his Proverbs that he's written, through this book that he's written, this is what he says. Is how do I remember God today? I remember God today by I take pleasure in his word. I take pleasure in in his word. How do I remember God today? I take pain in his word. His word provides me pleasure and it provides me pain. And then how? How should I remember God's word today? So this is, there's a, 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 a how and then there's a why, right? How should I do it? I take pleasure and I take pain. And the why should I remember God's word? It gives me perspective. God's word gives me perspective. And it gives me preparation. It prepares me. How and why we should remember God today. Not tomorrow, 
but right now. How do I remember God today? I take pleasure. I take joy. I take delight in his word. Ecclesiastes 12.10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he, wrote, he wrote the words of truth. Now, you just think about it. We've gone through all the book of Ecclesiastes. Did you find that all these words were delightful? No, the, the book of Ecclesiastes comes with hard statements that just pierce you, and you're like, these are words of delight? And Solomon said, yeah, I just took pain and pleasure. Like, what are the words of delight that I'm going to write? And these words are also truth. As we read this book, we know that these words of delight can be jarring. They can be hard. And at times, they can be depressing, right? The summation which I just gave you was the good news that Solomon gives in Ecclesiastes. You're going to die. That's the good news he gives us. And the bad news, you don't know when. So be prepared. But all this, we mostly, as, as a people, as a, as a church, we mostly talk about the Bible as being truth. Right? This is the word of God, and God is true, and so this book is true all the way through. It's true, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, and we want truth as a people. <coughs> but the Bible isn't just a book of truth. The Bible is a book of beauty. It's beautiful. Beauty and truth are interlinked, interlinked through Scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about Scripture uh, this way. This is the first way it talks about it. We may be influenced by the testimony of the church to value the Bible highly and reverently, and Scripture itself shows it in so many ways that it is God's Word. For example in its spiritual subject matter, in the effectiveness of its teaching, the majesty of its style, the agreement of all its parts, its unifying aim from beginning to end, to give all glory to God, the full revelation it makes of the only way of man's salvation, its many other incomparable outstanding features, and its complete perfection. What is first saying all of this is that what the scripture is, is beautiful. There is no other piece of work like it. There is no other literature like it. It is beautiful through and through. It is majestic. He goes on to tell you the only way that we do know it actually is the word of God, the only way we do actually see the beauty of it, if the inwardly working of the Holy Spirit allows us to see that. Like no man can convince us. No, no pastor can convince you of that. No, no church can convince you of that. Now, you can do all the study and the research and the textual criticism you want, and what you'll find, that it is beautiful. But only the Holy Spirit can convince you that it's God's word. But first and foremost, the scripture is beautiful. We are to delight and receive joy in God's word. Think about this. The next book after this is the, is the book of Song of Solomon. God doesn't just give us marriage. He doesn't just give us love. He doesn't just give us sex. He gives us a whole book in the Song of Solomon filled with beautiful, explicit imagery of marriage, sex, and love. So much so, so much so, that many Jewish people at that time would even let their young people read the book of Song of Solomon because it was so 
erotic, so beautiful, so illicit that it would conjure people up in their minds things that we don't want them to know yet. Now, I know all of you are like turning right now to the Song of Solomon <laughs> and going to tune me out. No, don't! <laughs> because some of the imagery you're going to like, what? Goats? I mean, teeth as, as goats or something like that? You know, it's just weird, right? Some of the imagery. But it's beautiful in all its like God gives us beautiful language, beautiful words to delight in, to take pleasure in them. Are you excited about God's words? Do you delight in hearing and learning about God through his word? I have found in my life more and more that uh, video presentations of scripture or video depictions of the story of God don't help me at all. And I don't find much delight in them. The more and more I grow in, in who God is, I have found that they actually distract me. But his word, his word I delight in. His word, I think, is manifest more in me when I read him. I'm not talking about do you, do you consume a lot of his word, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Or how often are you full with his word? Or how easy reading God's word is? Or how difficult of reading God's word. But do you find delight? Are you anticipating joy as you open up this book? Are you eager to come on Sunday morning because you know God's word is going to be spoken? Are you excited to learn something new about God each and every day when you open up his word? Are you excited to learn something new about yourself? Are you excited to learn something new when you come to worship? Are you expecting to be wowed by God's immense beauty as he revealed himself new to you through the same scriptures, through the same word that you've heard perhaps over and over again, right? It's that ability when you read a passage over and over and over again and you each time there's something new and beautiful. Or maybe it's not each time. Like, but sometimes after the fourth or fifth time or the twentieth time or the hundredth time, there's something new in it. The words haven't changed. But the working of the Holy Spirit has changed in me. And there's something beautiful in that. Are you childlike when you come to the scriptures? Expecting eagerness, anticipating delight with God's word. Are you taking pleasure in Scripture? How can you have joy in anything else if you don't have joy in God's Word? If you don't experience joy and pleasure in God's Word, how would you expect to have joy anywhere else in your life? Scripture talks about the joy in Scripture, the beauty in Scripture in Psalm 19, 7 through 10. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul creates something new. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. Right? Something new. Something's created. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey 
drippings of the honeycombs. Did you hear the description of God's word there? First of all, God's words create something in us. And God's words are to be desired and take pleasure. They're the sweetest things. They're the most precious things. God's word. David Gibson in his book says, God's word is meant to make you smile. You open up God's words. Are you so joyous that you smile? How am I to remember God today? I remember God's word today through his word. I don't take pleasure in it. And God's word ought to give me pain. That night may seem opposite to you. Ecclesiastes 12, 11 says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, I assume that most of you don't know what a goad is, or have not used a goad, or a goad has not been used against you. A goad is a, a shepherd's a tool, uh, mostly a goat would be used for ox or cattle. It would be a stick with nails or sharp things at the end. And so when that cattle, it's also shepherds used it as well too, but just didn't use the sharpest instruments. So a shepherd's staff would be kind of, that crook of his staff would be pointed out, right? So the pointy part. So when a sheep or a cattle, they went astray, they went off the path, and were going in the direction in which the shepherd wanted, they would take the goat and whap it and get it back online. It was a thing of discipline. You're off kilter. You're, you're being distracted. This summer, when we were in Yellowstone, we went on a horseback riding with the, uh, the family and the kids, the extended family. It was quite the sight to see our city sicker, city sicker boys uh, riding horses. But what happened is like, they would tell you right at the beginning, don't let the horses eat the grass in the field. And you've got to be strong right away because all of them are going to go down and be distracted and test you and try to eat the grass. Now, the younger ones couldn't control the horses to stop them to do it because you had to yank really hard on them. We didn't have goats, by the way, to jab the horses. But you had to pull really hard. And so the younger ones, their horses kept going down and down and down and get distracted until the, the guy, the cowboy, came by and swapped the horse, and they didn't do it. But that's the purpose of these, that, that Scripture are goats. It's a meant of discipline to get us back on track. All the wisdom of Solomon from beginning to end is from one shepherd that is meant to move us along one narrow path. And he is not expecting us to lead. He is not expecting us to know the way. He's just expecting to us to follow. And he knows that we are sheep and we are cattle and sheep and cattle are not the brightest animals. And they're stubborn. And they're easily distracted. Then just think about it. God gave Adam and Eve. He gave them this beautiful garden. He gave them all the food that they could ever want. And he gave them a job and a purpose. And he said, one thing. Here's the path. You can go anywhere, do anything. One thing. And even in that, they're easily distracted. And so, oh, there's one thing. I'm going to do that one thing. God knows that we are easily distracted and moved off his way and off the path of life. And so discipline and correction is necessary. And here's what we know about discipline and correction in our lives. It is painful. It's painful. Right? It's, when we say as parents, when we discipline our cards, right? maybe you spank, maybe you don't. I don't know. I know I was spanked. 
right? And those words, this is going to hurt me more than you. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> right? The, the physical, right? It's going to hurt me. We know discipline is painful because something is changing in us. Something is dying in us. And something new is being created. Now, many of you have, well, all of you have been through uh, childbirth. Not true, but some of you have seen it up close. I write that. We know that the path that child has to go out, right, that is not an easy path. It's, it's like, it doesn't even make sense how that child can get out of a woman, right? But we also know it's painful for the woman. I'm just assuming it's painful for the child because there is a narrow opening to get through. And things have to be squished to get out. All right, that was graphic as enough uh, that you need. But words are graphic as you need on that. Google it if you want to know more, right? <laughs> Discipline hurts because something new. Uh, Kafka wrote these words. He says, a book must be an axe for the frozen sea inside of us. It needs to kill something. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That description sounds painful, doesn't it? That's what the word of God is. There is a pain to it because it is creating something because all God's words are love. And love is creative. And God needs to kill something in us to provide something new. In fact, the description of what it says, your, your heart is broken, your heart is stone. And so God needs to do open heart surgery on us. He needs to remove that heart and he needs to put a new heart in us. There's pain in that. God's words hurt and are painful because they're meant to destroy or kill the illusion of who we think we are and the false reality in which we create around us. And when we read and hear the word of God, some of it should be upsetting to us, some of it should be offensive to us, some of it should be uh, upset our sensibilities. And here's how you know uh, that you are in pain or maybe that you resist pain. Right? When was the last time that you read the word of God and you had to submit to it or act in a way that was opposite in which you were acting or that you wanted to act. And maybe it was something you knew correction on, but you're, like, you're still hesitant on that because God's words cut to our heart. Or did you read God's word and you knew there was a correction in your heart or a change that needed to happen into you and you reinterpret that goad into the side, into the goat that's been slapped into you as something else, and then you justify your actions. And so, well, that goat must not be that. It must mean something else. And so you justify your action, you justify your thoughts, and you justified your way of life. So it doesn't cause you pain. Maybe it's something you don't like in Scripture. I don't like it. Do you find ways to make that thing that you do not like to be more pleasing instead of painful? Or do you find ways that I'm just going to dismiss that, ignore that, not read that, and read something else? The Word of God should cause pain in our lives. David Gibson also writes this, Don't 
domesticate your Bible. Live in God's world and realize that because we are sheep, we will always naturally seek to develop our own goads, to poke and prod the Bible instead of letting it painfully poke and prod us. You know it's pain when you read the Bible and it flips your expectations. When it challenges your priorities. When it offends your behavior. And when it opposes your world view. How am I remember God today in his word? I remember by taking pleasure and by taking pain in God's word. Why should I remember God's word today? Because it gives me perspective. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of all matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. All has been heard. All has been spoken. All scripture read. The end of everything is this. In fact, he emphasized it again at the very end. The whole duty, your whole duty is summarized in this. Fear God and obey his command. Now, we just sang a song about fearless, right? And, of course, when the, the, in the New Testament, the one of the things that talks about in fearing God, that the, the most often repeated command is do not fear do not fear, because his, his presence is fearful, but he's saying, listen, I know I am all-powerful, but you are able to approach. You are able to be in relationship with me. So fear is awe, it's reverence, it's actually trust. And we've talked about fear ultimately is love. Love and obedience. Obey all his commands. We know that obedience only happens when it's based on love. And so the summation of all this and the summation of all the law which the New Testament tells right, is love God. Love God. Do you love God? That, that is illustrated by when you, when you fear him, you respect him, and you trust him, and it's illustrated by when you obey all the things that he commands. Do you love him? Proverbs 9, 10. The summation, the whole duty of man. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This means that our life is not compartmentalized. If this is our whole duty, we're not compartmentalized. This doesn't mean just our church aspect of our life, just our, our Christian aspect of our life. So what kind of son or daughter should you be? You should be one that fears God and obeys His commandments. What type of student should you be? You should be one that fear God and obeys his command. What type of employee should you be? One that fears God and obeys his command. What type of boss should you be? What type of husband or wife should you be? What type of father and mother should you be? What type of aunt or uncle what type of person should you be in all circumstances, in all moments? You know, the, the, the doctor in China that uh, put the alert on the coronavirus, I don't know if you've followed this story at all, he's dead now because of the coronavirus. 
But he discovered that this was going to be a problem, this, this virus. And so he reported up the chain of command, and the government of China said, be quiet. This isn't a problem. Don't talk about it. And you know why he talked about it? He actually rebelled against his government. Not because he feared his government, because he feared God. He was a Christian man. And the reason why he said, I need to do this, because I love God and I love people, and people need to know that this is serious. Now, whatever my government says, this is serious. It's a big deal. There were consequences for him. And of course, then the consequence that just happened to be, not to the government given, that he died of coronavirus. But the point, he was the kind of doctor that feared God and obeyed his commands. David understood that in his repentance in Psalm 51, that when he was repenting for his sin against Bathsheba, right, when he had a, committed adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife, and then had Bathsheba's wife, I mean, husband, killed, right? David understood when he says in Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you must be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He said to God, like, I know in all this as I'm repenting that what ultimately I've done is sinned against you, God. Even though I've sinned against these people, I've sinned against my people by disobeying, what I've ultimately done is I've not obeyed you. What I've ultimately done is I have not loved you. And so David repents to God for not loving him. The reason why we, we love other people, the reason why we serve other people, the reason why we care for other people, we know because we love God. And God says, right, this is the golden rule, right? What you do unto others, do unto me, or to me, right? The golden rule, right? So God lays down his life. So he loves us. And the way he tells us to repay him, to owe the debt to him, is lay down your lives for me by laying down your lives for others. Love me, if you love me, you will love your brothers. That's the whole duty. When we read the Bible, it brings us perspective of why and how we do all things. It brings perspective of how we love God and how we love people. Our whole duty is to love him. Romans 13, 8 says this way. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law which is love God. Why should I remember God's word today? It, not only, it, it gives me perspective, but it prepares me for today. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We've been describing wisdom, and the Ecclesiastes wisdom is skillfully living for God. Skillfully living for God. Because at the end of all things, God judges all things. God is the judge of all things. He creates all things, right? And we, we repeat in the um, apostles and Nicene creeds, that God has come to judge the living and the dead. Those that have died before us and those that are currently living, God will judge all things. And so God's word prepares us to live today because it doesn't whitewash our reality. It teaches us what's going on. And we read in hard things in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 4.1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. 
And behold, the tears of their oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. We read the hard things like that, and we come to it, God's wisdom and all of God's words allows us to deal with the hard and unspeakable circumstances in our world. Because we know that God will ultimately judge all things. He will judge the oppressors. He will judge the oppressors right now in our world. He will do that. He won't judge them maybe in our timeline, right? But he will judge. He says, don't, you don't take vengeance upon them. I will take vengeance upon all that is evil. God eventually brings justice. And of course, most people, all of us, really eventually question the problem of evil in our world. Like all of us. It's one of the reasons some people don't even come to Christ is because they question God. Why does God allow evil in the world? It's a great question. It is a, and if you don't wrestle with that question, you're not really wrestling with reality. Well, first of all, there's evil. And why, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why does he allow that? But here's the thing. Scripture answers that question. It's a hard question. And it's a hard answer. But a lot of people don't even take the time to examine how Scripture answers that question. Take the time. Be honest with it. At least know how, the, how Christianity responds to that question, how God responds to that answer. And the answer is quite simple. Because God is graceful. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem really satisfying. Because he loves us. Because here's the thing with evil. It's not separated from us. It's not, hey, there's evil out there. I'm on the side of good. Why is it God not dealing with that? Because when we say, why is God not dealing with evil right now? Why does he allow it to exist? What you're saying is, why does God allow me to exist? Because he's graceful. Because he's loving. Because he's long-suffering. Not like us. That's the answer. Evil doesn't exist apart from us. And all the systematic evil in the world, it's not because of Satan. All the, the oppression in the world is because of us. God is graceful. He's given grace to evil things to allow repentance. The problem of evil is that we don't see things in God's eternal perspective. God is long-suffering, and he knows all things will be judged, and all things will be vindicated. It's the argument that uh, God has with Job. Job eventually says, why are you allowing all this evil to happen? And basically what God says, Job, you really don't understand my perspective on the world. You're very limited. You're very vain. You're very temporal. I see the beginning and the end. I got it, Job. It's okay. God's word prepares us to know that, we will, that he will ultimately avenge all evil. God's word helps us to avoid, to avoid the truth and the reality around us. It helps us to deal with the, the, the truth within us that surrounds us that we are sinners. And it helps us to prepare for the end by living wisely, skillfully for God. 
and then skillfully for others right today. We don't fear death. We don't fear the end of this world. We fear and trust and love the one who holds it all in the palm of his hand. The creator of all things with his word. Ecclesiastes 2.11 Then I considered all that my hands have done and toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon's perspective of, listen, this world is temporary. This world is vain. Eventually it passes and there's nothing to be gained under the sun in this life. From Paul, Solomon's point of view, that was correct. But here, the gospel clearly expressed by Paul that there is one thing to gain under the sun. One thing to gain under the sun. And interestingly, wait, Solomon says there's nothing to be gained under the sun is that you all will die. That's what he's saying. And then Paul says this one truth of the gospel, Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The thing that is inevitable, Paul's saying, that's the gospel. To die is to gain. That's the truth. To live for Christ under the sun while you're under the sun. And we do that by dying to self. And we do that by reading God's words to help us to die to ourselves. And then we can live for Christ when we die. The fixed point in all of our life is death and judgment. All things will be judged. It's a secured and fixed point in history. But interesting enough, our judgment and death is not something in the future. It's something that's been secured in the past at the cross. God has said, look at, listen to this promise. I've already fixed that point of judgment and death and it's already been secured at the cross where Jesus, who lived wisely for the Father, who lived wisely for us, for our gain, dies on our behalf. And as we follow him, we follow the path of death to this world and rebirth and resurrection to him. The future death and judgment secured in the past at the cross prepares us to live right now. God's word and truth prepares us for that truth and reality. Death is a certainty. The timing of our death is uncertain. The point of the wisdom of all Ecclesiastes is this, is our lives should be used for the lens of our death. It should motivate us to live today for God. And how and why we should live for God today, how should we remember God today? We should take pleasure in his word, we should take pain in his word. Because his word gives us perspective on how to live for him today, and it gives us perspective, prepares us how to live today for him. Let us be a people to live to fullest for God today by being in his word today. Which means if you have it tomorrow, be in his word tomorrow. His word that creates, that creates something new in us. Hey, sticks and stones will kill us one day, but God's word will save us.
Amen.